Thank you, Jacob. Thank you, Jason, for reading the scripture. Jacob, for leading us in musical worship. It's good to be with you today. I'm glad that uh, we're together as we desire to take on the study of God's words. Everything leads right up to this. So our hearts are prepared. We've come to the point where we uh, have surrendered to Him and His authority. And so let's open the Word of God to 1 Timothy chapter 5. It's my desire to finish 1 Timothy 5 today. So we're going to work our way through. Take a few minutes at the beginning. We're going to catch uh, the, the principles we've looked at already, which help us to give this one cohesive unit. And so turn 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 17. And this is this last section, of course, in the topic relating to those who lead the church. We saw early on in, chap- in verses 17 and 18, as all the way up to this point, the Apostle Paul has been addressing what Timothy has to do for the negatives, for those who uh, have caused trouble in the church, what they're teaching, how to go about teaching uh, so that it is corrected, all those kinds of things. Paul, even at the end of chapter 1, had to put two elders out of the church because they wouldn't change what they were teaching. And so we get to this point now, and what Paul wants to tell Timothy, listen, there's going to be some guys there who are qualified. There's going to be some guys there who are doing what they're supposed to do in the way the Scripture describes And there are some principles then in your relationship to them. And he's going to start out in verses 17 and 18. And we saw three right there in a row in verses 17 and 18. The first way the church is to relate to that kind of elder is with honor. And then we saw in principle number two, it was a twofold honor, one of respect and one of pay. And so we looked at all those background verses. You can catch up on that if you need to. And then generally, as we look at those two verses... Uh, All elders who do a good job, that's not subjective as the Scripture describes what that good job is supposed to look like. Overseeing the church are worthy of both of those honors, but especially recognize those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Those are the most important things that an elder can do in the church. Now, we saw last week that verse 19 follows very closely in giving instruction on the church's responsibility to those who lead her. And it comes by way of protection. So open your Bible, look at verse uh, 19, if you would, and we'll just kind of track through there as you open your Bible. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, do not receive, it says, an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And as we read that last time, we realized that our new section of relating to pastors and elders is this whole matter of ensuring their safe and proper treatment. After all, I think it's really fairly obvious to say that pastors are often the topic in the church. There are always things floating around about them. Church leaders are very highly visible, can be very vulnerable to the adverse actions of those who are disorderly, uh, the the malicious, the ill-willed, the whispering types of gossip. And because this is a consecrated trust to be called into the ministry, the man is typically a target. It's not not surprising, of course. Uh, And then because the effectiveness of the ministry is largely dependent on a man's integrity, on his believability, on his credibility, on his purity, his holiness, his virtue of life, uh, these are typically the things that are called into question with types of accusations that come along. And they undermine him. And if they undermine him, the people won't trust him. And, And the net effect may be to totally end his ministry or make the church ineffective or both. There's an old Yiddish folklore tale about this. Uh, One such man had told so many malicious untruths about the local rabbi that overcome by remorse, he begged the rabbi to forgive him. And rabbi, please tell me how I can make amends, he said. The rabbi sighed. He said, okay, 
take two pillows and go to the public square and there cut the pillows open, wave them in the air, and then come back. The man quickly went home, got two pillows and a knife. He hastened to the square, cut the pillows open, waved them in the air, and then ran back to the rabbi's chambers. I did just what you said, rabbi. Good, the rabbi said. Now, to realize how much harm you've done, go back to the square and, and collect all the feathers. I think that has a lot of application. It's a very serious issue. Some churches are plagued with many such types of people. It's that way now. It was certainly that way in the first century. Paul has to deal with it here. It's almost as if some supernatural being enjoys its devastating effect and continues to coax men and women into it. And, and we saw 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 is precisely what's happening. In 2 Timothy 2, 24, we do have a supernatural being involved in all of this. It says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil market, having been held captive by him to do his will. So after correcting the opposition, anti-diatithemy just means against, that's the word anti, and a diatithemy is a covenant or a testimony. So it all has to do with is just in some way, uh, those who won't get along, those who say the opposite, something else besides what the elder says, something that can be antagonistic, some type of undermining types of statements that has, uh, has everything to do with that. So it can take in a lot of situations that may displease someone or cause them to be upset or cause them to be dissatisfied or whatever it may be. And what they don't realize is in their antagonism and in their disagreeableness and in their hostility, they're in the wrong. They're in the wrong. And the prayer is that God will grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and come to their senses. So whatever it is that they're doing, it's wrong. They may lead. We pray that the Lord may lead them to the knowledge of the truth, come to their senses and realize that they have been held captive by a uh, supernatural being, our adversary in the snare of the devil to do what he wants inside the church. And this is a regular occurring thing. And of course, the deliverance has to come from a volitional response. Uh, but in the meantime, those situations can cause a lot of harm to the elder and a lot of harm to the church. So we saw, Paul starts out this topic with a sentence. He says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. This is a compound Greek verb, paradecomy. Uh, para is beside and decomy is to take with a hand. It has to do with receiving or, or giving access or an ear to something. Present passive imperative. In other words, in the passive, don't listen to it. Better, don't receive it. It's going to come to you, don't receive it. And what are you not to receive? It says an accusation against an elder. Categoria is where we get that word category. It's derived from agori, which is a place of public speaking persist, uh, prefixed by kata, so against in the public. So it really takes in a whole lot of things, but it just has someone speaking against those who lead the church and making that public. And people do that with slander. They do it with gossip. They do it with letters and emails. That's very popular. Of course, it's all, it's all couched in very spiritual terms and very spiritual concerns and what, however, it's, however it's prefaced. But it has all, it's lumped all in with all of the 2 Timothy 2.24 and, and the accusation. It's just whatever it is against the elder, that's to be, it says, rejected outright. 
not investigated, not entertained, ignored. That's in the imperative. Because people can and they will say all kinds of things to falsely accuse the men who lead the church and try to ruin their ministry. And so principle number four in relating to elders is an unsubstantiated accusation against a pastor or elder is to be rejected. It's a command. Now, when a man is placed in spiritual leadership, he has to anticipate uh, that hateful, jealous, deceived, or uninformed, or simply sinful people will falsely accuse him and try to ruin his ministry. It's not a surprise. Uh, Jesus said of all his disciples, listen, this, the servant is not greater than the master. If they hated the master, they'll hate the servant. So you expect that to be the case. If you live a faithful testimony in the community, uh, people are going to falsely accuse you. But here, in particular, as it's speaking of spiritual leadership, it's, it's clear that that is going to be the case. And Paul understands this very well, as he himself was always having to defend himself over and over again. So he understands this heartache. And we said last time, the passage isn't saying, and I'm certainly not saying in any way that pastors and elders are perfect because there are no perfect men at all. You're not perfect and neither am I. And so what you need to understand is when a man's responsible for teaching and preaching and is worthy of honor, that doesn't mean that he has an absolutely perfect relationship with everyone. That's impossible to do. And part of wisdom is the giving of honor and to realize the difficulty of ministry on a day-in and day-out basis and then be able to distinguish between gossip and false accusations and lies and reality. And so this is a very important principle. And I gave you Luke chapter 6 last time. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way they spoke of your fathers, the false prophets. When everybody thinks you're great, it's likely that you are not great. It's impossible to keep that perfect relationship with everyone. And because, uh, you know, if our adversary can't create a situation where the elder disqualifies himself from 1 Timothy 3 or from Titus 1, then he may use someone just to try to discredit him from underneath. And so part of honor is to protect and insulate then the pastor elder with a deaf congregation. That's the whole idea. Don't entertain it. In the sense of gossip, in the sense of slander and slanted stories and unmet expectations and unsubstantiated accusations and all and on and on and on and on. And that by itself would relieve a lot of stress in the lives of those who oversee the church. Now, of course, Paul is not saying that elders are to be beyond accusation if accusation is legitimate. And we saw in verse 19 at the very end of that verse, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So there's only one way you can consider it. And that's found in principle number five in relating to an elder. It's when it is reported by two or three trustworthy witnesses and then properly investigated. In Matthew 18, verse 16, it shows the same type of verification. These two or three witnesses, I took you through all those passages last time. You can catch up on all those. But uh, they themselves will go to the individual and the Lord puts those people together and they will be Galatians 6, 1 kinds of people. If anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of humility, knowing you yourselves also may be tempted like a sea. And so it's an idea of restoration. It's an idea of humbleness. It's not an idea of, you know, searching out the worst in someone when you're harboring pretty bad things yourself. And this is where multiple elders will come into the picture. 
uh, multiple elders certainly make this process go much more smoothly. They can guide the investigation because they already know what it takes to continue to be qualified in the ministry. And this letter from Paul, of course, is written to Timothy, placed as an elder in the Ephesian church. So obviously the elders are going to be involved in this process. And so those were some of the questions that came last week and it kind of addresses some of that. The elders will be involved in that once that gets to multiple people. And so they will get together soon enough. And, and this is a patient, this is a careful humble process because that's how the Lord deals with each of you and with me. A long process waiting for us to repent and come uh, to Him. And so, this is the issue. And the evidence must be sufficient. It must be practically certain over a period of time. Otherwise, there is to be no action. It's a deaf ear. Because even accusations that are shown to be untrue many times damage the reputation of the elder. He's the one where there was some problem or whatever it is. So there has to be so careful as we go through those kinds of things. If this isn't a sin issue, or if there are not multiple and there's not multiple trustworthy witnesses from whose testimony an investigation can be launched, then the church is to ignore it and take no notice of it and end it at the very beginning. And the point of this instruction, of course, is to ensure that pastor elders are never in the power of trivial, frivolous accusations of unhappy people who didn't get what they wanted or, and this is more often the case, didn't understand what went on in another situation with someone else or there just may be a personality conflict or a beef with those in authority. There's any kind of things that go on there. Those are supposed to be dismissed outright. Otherwise, they're going to have to go around to the church justifying themselves to people and, and who are typically eager or willing to believe just about anything. And that's what's supposed to be avoided. But unfortunately, many elders have to spend way too much time doing just that. And the instruction goes on for verse 20, and, and, and there we can see what is to happen if the requirements are met and the investigation reveals the truth of an ongoing sin issue because that's the issue. Look at verse 20. Those who, it says, continue in sin, rebuke, in the presence of all, so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. Those who continue in sin, the Greek verb harmar tenotes, present, active, participle. What's that mean? Harmar is to miss the mark. That's typically used of the word sin. Uh, it's, it's, uh, and it's archery term. It's to miss the bullseye, to miss the mark. And it's unrepentant sinfulness. So in this tense voice and mood, they are continually present, active, participle, missing the mark. This describes the action. It is of missing the mark continually. It's what's incontrovertible, discovered with patience, with two or three trustworthy witnesses. Then what happens? Rebuke in the presence of all. L-N-K, rebuke, present active imperative. This is the reality of the response. There's not any wiggle room here. We see the same verb, and, and you, you remember John chapter 3, verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will, here's our word in the aorist passive subjunctive, be exposed. People, you witness to people and they run from the light. Why? The main reason the Bible says, regardless of what they say to you, is that they're worried that their deeds will be exposed. That there's, and that's in the, that's a snapshot event, possible or probable. It's in the subjunctive mood. If he comes to the light, then he will have revealed to him, passive, how bad his sins really are. So we don't come to faith, we don't repent and believe unless we realize how much we've offended God, you see? So the presentation of the gospel has to be clear on that point. 
that our sins have offended a holy God, that we've disobeyed his commands, we continue to disobey his commands, and people run from that revealing of that light, but you come to faith when you realize, because the Holy Spirit gives you that understanding, that you have offended a holy God, and your deeds are wicked, and then you repent of them. Well, here, what we have is it is in present active participle. We discover, it is discovered that is a continuous, uh, continuous habit of unrepentant sinfulness. That is discovered. They continue in sin. And so, our, our command is that it be exposed. Their word, it will be exposed. We are to expose it and make it clear. So, protection up to a point. But that point is continued sin. No protection. What it basically says here, there's absolutely no immunity. There's tremendous vulnerability here too. And I told you last week as kind of a, a footnote, this is very hard for me to teach to you. It's easy for me to teach to you honor and respect and protect. Okay. I mean, th those are things I've had to experience and I understand that. Also understand that I'm not grinding any acts here. You guys take care of me. You honor me. I'm very grateful for what you do. Uh, there's, no, there's no agenda here. Just giving you what the Word of God says. But here we come to, and I have to give you what has to happen for an elder who's caught in continuous unrepentant sinfulness. And that is that he is to be rebuked. And, and so there's, the sins are not categorized here. It doesn't say, it just says continue in sin. It could have easily listed the sins that would be the ones you have to rebuke him for. But it, I think if we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, you can just confirm what that looks like. And I did that for you last week. I just reversed everything. And you can do that too. Where it says he is to be this, he isn't this, and just work your way through. Any of those things qualify. So you can't be partial for one sin over against another. And that was principle number six. If he's found to be continuing in unrepentant sin after being carefully examined by two or three witnesses. There is no immunity. He is to be publicly rebuked. He is to be, the sins are to be exposed. And what that does is it establishes what the issue really is and what the qualifications were to be. In other words, where is it that he has erred and continued in sinfulness and won't repent? And his rebuke is quicker because the culpability is greater. He was supposed to be the example of those qualifications because there's just one level of godliness for everyone. And those who serve as deacons and those who serve as elders are supposed to be the example of those things. And so then he would have to step down. And the principle behind that is, and I gave you a bunch of other things last time. I won't give you that today. You can look back. But if you're no longer qualified because of continued sin, according to 1 Timothy 3, then you can't serve in that position any more than you could have assumed it to begin with if you were not qualified according to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I think that makes pretty clear sense. If you've got to be qualified according to 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 through 7, and then the deacons, you know, you ate on through the end, that if you become disqualified in the course of discharging the ministry, you can't remain. I think you can see that. And, and that's just very, very straightforward. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 has to be the overriding factor. An overseer then must be above reproach, present, active, indicative. That is the course of his life. As you examine his life, he is above reproach. He doesn't fall foul of those things. But here he would no longer meet those requirements, and so he has to be out of the ministry. And so there is to be a public rebuke so that everyone will know why he has to be gone, and that's when the other elders are going to be in it, so to speak, because everyone will have an opinion about what we should do with the pastor. But what happens is, uh, in this imperative mood, these commands will make sense, and the elders will make sense of those things. Now, verse 20. 
Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all. And here it is, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. So there's an additional benefit uh, to making sure that those who lead remain qualified for that leadership. And that's principle number seven in relating to elders. The public portion of the rebuke is there so that others may profit. And it appears that the rest is just directed to the other elders because it renews the efforts of restraint and reigning in the life. And that's what you have to do if you're going to stay aligned with 1 Timothy chapter 3. And that's what it means. It's they will be, the rest will be fearful of sinning. So they see the one elder rebuked and so the elders are much more in, in tune with reigning their life in, restraining their life, checking on themselves. We're going to see in just a minute how Paul tells Timothy to check himself carefully. That's precisely what has to happen. And that's what's uh, intended to happen. And be fearful of sinning, of course, the elders. But the people of the church as well are going to benefit because there's just one standard of godliness. And so you don't want to be hypocritical. And people realize that there's no exemption from discipline for continued unrepentant sinfulness, regardless of what position you may hold in the church. And like Matthew 18, this process creates a healthy respect and concern over being publicly rebuked and how it would affect them and their families and, and everyone else. And I think this is where today the church has really lost it and lost its direction, uh, both with members who are continued in sinfulness and leadership that sins with impunity, and, and then they both move on to other churches and do the same thing. And we've seen that over and over again as we have to rebuke someone in the congregation and they just split and go to another church. So they're just going to do the same thing. And, and these can be very, very difficult. And a lack of courage here is not surprising because it's so difficult to do. And the collateral damage and the blowback can be so severe. So Paul deals with that too in verse 21. Because it's easy to do nothing, to be frozen into immobility and just say, okay, I can't do it. This is too much. It's going to cause too much problem at the beginning. And it's going to be too hard for the individual or whatever it is. So he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. And that is principle number eight in relating to elders. All the instructions for relating to elders are very important issues because the very ones who will judge us are watching what we do. So in spite of its unpopularity, in spite of the possible blowback and all the difficulties that can be part of it, God expects us Jesus expects us, the holy angels watch and wait for obedience. And we should always be concerned about what is supposed to be done in the church. In fact, the whole thesis, the main thesis for these pastoral epistles is found in 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. In case I'm delayed, I write these things to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. And so I think it's important that we realize we should be very concerned that we do what God's carried his writers along to say. Many people today will say, I believe what God says in his word, and yet will respond in such a way that shows that they don't really believe what they just said. Because there's always some reason why they're not going to do precisely what it says in the Word of God. This is very, very common. And there's all kinds of reasons for it to be. They'll read what it says and just say, well, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't really want to do that. I don't think God expects that of me. Even though it clearly says what it says. And the church is supposed to be the pillar and support of the truth. It is the very foundations on which truth exists. And so... We have to be concerned with what God says and, what, and that's carried out because he has the right to say what goes on with those who call on his name. 
And Jesus, if we look at him, because he's named too, he wants a pure bride. And so he's concerned about the church's purity. And holy angels are always concerned with the obedience of the church. And we see that numerous times Paul calls on the angels as witnesses. Why? Because they're always waiting and watching to see what the church is going to do with the fact that the Holy One, the Eternal One, came and gave his life as a ransom for them. What's their response? It's always to be obedience in everything. Because angels are what? Always doing what God says. It's not like, well, I don't really feel like that. That's, that's not that cool. That doesn't work right in the culture today. You know, angels never say that. They just go and do what God says. And that's what he expects us to do. And, and so, Paul will deal with some closing points as we come to verse 22 that have to do with selecting elders and and. and um, and of course, considering the difficulty and the hardship that would be part of rebuking them, this follows very easily, I think. If you look at verse 22, this is interesting. He says this. Now, he just got through dealing with all the difficulty of what? If a guy's caught in continued sinfulness and he, and he hasn't repented, and there's two or three witnesses that's been thoroughly examined, then he says this, and this makes sense. Do not lay hands on anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. So how does Timothy assure himself that he's choosing the right man? Well, if there needs to be twofold honor, if he needs to be protected from frivolous and agenda-driven types of accusations, and the difficulty of exposing ongoing sin needs to be so careful and patient and tedious, and there's lots of blowback and difficulty and all of that, even to the point that you could be partial and not want to do it, then a great deal of caution has to be exhibited. And so principle number nine is this in relating to elders. The way to prevent unqualified men from becoming elders is to avoid a rushed appointment. I think that makes sense. Just avoid a rushed appointment. And it says, do not lay hands on. That's something we dealt with back in 1 Timothy 4.14. That's in the process of ordination. It has to do with actually placing him in the ministry in the pulpit, if you will. And, and you've, been, you've experienced that with us. As, um, as we send our missionaries out, what do we do? We bring them to the middle. I, I have you get up. I have you lay your hands on them. You are participating in the sending. You recognize in your efforts there as you lay your hands on them that they are qualified, that they've met the, they, they have all the background they need. They are committed to the Lord and we send them that way. And so you're committed to that. It becomes part of who you are. It's an objective public affirmation of the call and the qualification and the gifting. And here it has to do with the pastor, the elders. You affirm that they have the, call, the, the correct call and the qualifications and the giftings. And this is a public affirmation. So Paul cautions Timothy, don't lay hands upon anyone too hastily. Don't be, in other words, too quickly to a public affirmation. In other words, installing a man in the church. And earlier, earlier in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul insisted that church leaders must not be recent converts. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? Although this, we fall afoul of this a lot. Some guy will come to faith. He's very excited about the faith. He, he, uh, he you know, begins to get his education. He wants to pastor the church. What's the problem? There's no way to measure his spiritual growth. There's no way to see if he really is growing, if he's putting to death the deeds of the flesh. There's no way to see if he's really coming in, in line with what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Why? Because there's not a long enough history of his salvation to see if it's real. And so that's just obvious. There's got to be some time after, after him being born again before he can be installed in the ministry. Not a recent convert. And so 
he commands a careful screening. It's exactly what we see uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8 as it talks about deacons. They don't appoint a deacon too quickly. There has to be some testing, some time going along there. So it's a very common occurrence here. He commands a careful screening. Indifference or laziness leaves the leaders responsible, their partners, if you will, in the sins of their appointees when those appointees fall short. And we're going to look at that in just a moment because that's in the next verse. But what you don't want to do is to honor and protect men who don't deserve it in the first place. And here's the thing, beloved, and this happens a lot in the church, and I could give you story after story about this. What you don't want to have to do is put someone out while realizing while you're putting them out that the problem or the sin issue was probably going on when they were presented in the first place. So the next part of that verse is pretty serious. Thereby, it says, sharing responsibility for the sins of others. In other words, if you hurry a man into ordination and he is unsuited and unfitted and he has sinned, you literally koinoneo, you share responsibility. And so the English puts in responsibility, but the idea is that you fellowship in or you participate with that sinfulness. But responsibility, share responsibilities is added uh, so that we can understand the single Greek verb. It just means you're culpable. So in other words, when you lay hands on someone and affirm their fitness and call and qualifications and gifting, there is a close connection then. And we looked at how men were called in the Old Testament, how the Lord just directly called them. And in the first century New Testament uh, with the Apostle Paul and the Apostles and how the Lord uh, himself called them, Jesus himself. And then we get to Timothy and you see an elder being put in place by Paul. And then this elder is then now taking over this uh, administration. And we see that and we looked at all that, how that worked. But he is tasked then with this laying on of hands. And of course, as we pointed out, multiple elders make this job of examination of a new elder much more thorough because they understand what it takes to be in the ministry and have had long history history of doing what it looks, what it takes to be in it and keeping themselves aligned with it. And so by default, if the elders do a good job and they take their time and later then on the other side of it, the one who is ordained falls into sin, there's no blameworthiness there. And we're going to see in the next verses how that's covered by the Apostle Paul. There's no sharing of guilt. The guilt comes by doing it too quickly. Paul tells Timothy, as you go through the process, you're to give it enough time. And then he gives Timothy a couple of footnotes, and I'd like you to look there. He says this. He says, keep yourself free from sin and keep his present active imperative, the verb tereo, a direct command from Paul. The verb has to do with carefully looking around, has to do with actually seeing what is around you, perceiving, to attend to carefully as you would when you guard something. So, Obviously, keep yourself free from sin directed to Timothy himself, one standard of godliness, because do you really think the Lord wants any less from his bride than he wants from those under shepherds who lead their bride than to keep yourself free from sin? But this is precisely what we see all through the New Testament, to examine yourself closely, to walk faithfully with the Lord, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, right? All these kinds of things are made to help conform you to the point where you're watching carefully around. Ephesians chapter 5, we saw that is exactly the point. Watching carefully for the days are evil. So we have the same command here. Here he tells Timothy, keep yourself free from sin. What's the first application? Obviously, 
So much disrepute falls on the church when a man who leads them is caught up in sin. Even more intensely on the elders than who laid their hands on him. They share in that disrepute. So that first footnote Paul gives, part of keeping yourself qualified is to avoid sharing the sinfulness that comes from not doing a good job at screening those who lead up front. Making sure you do a good job. Uh, take enough time with it. So, and he's speaking to Timothy of watching carefully to keep himself free from sin. And then he gives a second footnote and he says in verse 23, he says, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I want to stop right there. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. Of course, we, we've commented on this verse before uh, because this verse seems to come up a lot in some of the most asked questions concerning the drinking of alcohol, which it is not dealing with. But because this verse seems to eclipse all the other prohibitions and warnings, then it becomes people's first question. And that's the first thing they come up to me after I teach what the Scripture says about the, uh, uh, using alcohol. Now, you know that the word wine in the first century simply refers to the juice made from grapes. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you how old the juice is. It doesn't tell you what the condition of the juice is. It just is the juice made from grapes, okay? That is the word. And because of the nature of a hot desert environment, fermentation could rapidly occur. And so careful safeguards were put in place to make sure those who drank did not become intoxicated, which is always a sin. Anytime you're affected by uh, alcohol that is intoxicating in any way, you're already incensed. There's no way to uh, justify that. And so they would mix older wine, wine that was likely fermented with water to a greater or lesser extent uh, to minimize the likelihood that someone would become intoxicated. Now, just to make sure that you understand how this works, I want you to turn, if you would, to John chapter 2. Just hold your finger here because we'll be right back. John chapter 2, verse 1. And I'm going to give you this context. This is a, another passage that comes up often in questions. And I appreciate uh, the continued questions. It means the Lord's working. It means that He's uh, speaking to your heart. You've got some questions about all these kinds of things. Uh, and so perhaps been taught incorrectly or understood it incorrectly. So everything in context, what did it mean to the first reader? What's it still, it's what it still means now. John chapter 2, verse 1. This will give us an understanding, a, a lot better understanding of what I just said. Okay? Now, it starts this way. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. So you see where we are. And you know what's going on here, right? And the mother of Jesus was there. Verse 2. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they've no wine. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Verse 6, now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, so they filled them up to the brim. Verse 8, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. Verse 9, when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servant who drew the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom, verse 10, and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Let's stop right there. Now, let me ask you a couple questions. What did Jesus make? He made new wine. 
he made new wine. What is that? That's fresh. What was this couple serving at their wedding feast? Older wine. That doesn't taste very good because it was mixed with, and it was mixed with water because it would keep people from becoming intoxicated in comparison to fresh wine. And I think that's fairly apparent if you look at the passage in this context, what was going on. Here's a couple that's not financially well off, obviously, because what were they serving to begin with with their guests, and what did the head waiter say? So to begin with, with their guests, what they were serving, older wine mixed with water. It didn't taste that great. But the head waiter said, hey, usually what happens if you can afford the fresh wine, which would have been much more expensive, right? Because it was just pressed. If you can afford the fresh wine, you give that to them first. And then when they've slated their thirst, then you bring out that which is less, it's older, but they're not going to drink as much of that. But here it was reversed. They were serving the watered-down wine to make sure no one's intoxicated. And Jesus makes fresh wine, and they serve it. And the, and the head waiter goes, well, they, we've mixed this whole thing up. So in understanding all of this, understanding alcohol, understanding its danger, understanding its, all that, do you really think, and this is what people come to me, they really think that Jesus made, when, when it says the better wine, well, it must be a better vintage See, that's putting today's vernacular and an understanding of alcohol back into the first century, but that doesn't fit, see? And it doesn't fit because we just got through uh, seeing some other examples that show that it can't mean that, you see. So what's Paul doing here? He's helping Timothy. Because back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and this uh, hopefully will help you understand and put this all together. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, look back there if you would. Um, you've been there before, just two chapters back. I'm not going to put a slide up. And we, we've, we've looked at this so extensively, and, uh, and I don't want to belabor the point. I just want to see, let you see this and how it's connected all together. It says, verse 1, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. There's the twofold call. An overseer then must be above reproach. There's the qualification. And everything that comes afterwards are what it means to be qualified or, as the case may be, disqualified. So it's the husband of one wife, and then this word, What's it say? Temperate. Paul is addressing here, as we saw, the godly qualifications required for elder leadership. And he is to be an example of these godly character traits. And there's only one standard, and it applies to the pew and the pulpit. And we went through this, all of these things, and, and extensively, and you can catch up on them if you missed them. Uh, just go on Spotify, go to Elder Leadership Parts 11 and 12, and, and that'll take you through all of that and give you all the background if you missed it. But what we see here is the adjective temperate, or you may have sober. And temperate is the Greek word nephileos. Literally, it is translated wineless. Now remember, wine just deals with the juice of grapes. But the example is to be what? Wineless. He is a man that doesn't participate in drinking wine. And that's at any level along the way. From fermented all the way back to fresh, he's supposed to avoid it. Why? Well, it's going to get into that. And the reason why it's given here very precisely uh, is for the reasons we gave. He's to be careful to never uh, drink in such a way. Uh, so godliness then is to avoid it altogether. He's never to drink in such a way that it impacts him. It would impact his testimony, whatever it is. Because everything is about qualifications and testimony. And so he is, what is Timothy doing? As we get to this, uh, just footnote to Timothy what do you think he's doing? Well, he's doing precisely what Paul said. He is what? Wineless. Because that's precisely what the qualifications are. 
So what does Paul tell him? No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, let me ask you a question. Is Paul instructing Timothy to use alcohol? Because it's precisely how the church thinks this verse is interpreted. And I've answered this question seriously. If I've answered it once, I've answered it 50 times. This is a very common mistake. Just as common as to say that Jesus went to the wedding and made fermented wine to give to the people. It's just as common misinterpretation. So he didn't tell Timothy to use alcohol. Most definitely not. He's telling him that he doesn't have to avoid the fruit of grapes completely. He just tells him he can use it to help him feel better. And to be clear that Paul isn't speaking of alcohol in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3. Look at the next verse. And this should tell you how important this is and how, what an issue this is inside the church. Verse 3 says this. Now remember verse 2 had the adjective temperate or sober. Nephileos, literally wineless. The standard for godliness is no wine, which would also include no alcohol by its very definition. But the word in verse 3 provides some additional instructions. It says, verse 3, not addicted to wine. Peroinos. Peroinos is a compound adjective. Para is with or beside, and oinos is the word for wine. Literally then, not beside wine. And so the emphasis here is in the place of drinking and avoiding it. So the atmosphere where others who drink, that's the emphasis here. Remember, all this is about testimony. It's all about character. Everything here is about the testimony and character of those who lead. And there's one standard of godliness. So the overseer has to be one who is careful to avoid the appearance of a drinker. And those associations and those locations are what's in view here. And so the standard of qualification is not just to be wineless and held uncompromisingly by those who lead as an example but to avoid being around those who are drinking or being beside or in the place of alcohol. And that could be places where everyone around you is participating or going somewhere where those you know will indulge. Why is that? Well, for the same reason. This, because it appears that you're doing what you're not supposed to do. You see, it's all about testimony. To avoid the appearance that you're a drinker. One standard of godliness for everyone. This has the idea of relationships and associations. He's not a drinker from verse 2. And he doesn't go places where that would be occurring all around him. And he could be associated with all of that. He doesn't go to places with people who are drinkers. And that's the best sense of the passage. And again, I think that's just obvious if you understand those things in their context. And, and then for the Holy Spirit to carry Paul along and to make another mention of alcohol twice in two verses just tells you how important this issue is for a believer. And I think that we can understand that because we're surrounded by people who would call themselves believers and believe that it's perfectly fine for them to indulge in intoxicating alcohol and to be affected by it, and that that's perfectly fine. And we can see very clearly that is not the case. And, and listen... People will always say, well, you know, after I give them the clear understanding of the passage and what the words mean, a lot of times the first response is, well, that's just your opinion, Pastor. I didn't give you anything just now in the last 10 minutes that was my opinion. Not a single thing. I, per I taught you completely and clearly what the Word of God says in its context with the verses that are typically used to justify the use of alcoholic drink. And, and listen, as we understand that word wine and drinking of wine, First of all, we have to understand that, that it's not one-to-one -one with biblically drinking wine, okay? 
What we understand about that today is not what was understood in the first century. So don't superimpose what you understand today back on the scriptures. That's never going to work. And again, there are literally hundreds of passages that cast alcohol in a negative light. Literally hundreds or give examples of people who used alcohol and ended up in dissipation. There are plenty of examples in the scriptures, and you probably have them in your life as well, people you know. You compound that by the fact that no passage in the Bible condones drinking alcohol. We just debunked two of the main ones. And if it is said, give this strong drink to those who are perishing. It doesn't remove any of the other prohibitions. It doesn't take anything else away. It just says if somebody is dying, give them something to help them with the pain. That's really the issue. So for medicinal purposes, it can be given for that. And then compound that by the compromised testimony that participating in alcoholic beverages inevitably creates. It's impossible for you to witness to someone you're drinking beer with, okay? Just be real. Okay, this is always, well, I, I, I go to a bar and I witness to people. Yeah, right. And it's really effective because you're doing precisely what the world does. And this is a very difficult thing for the modern church. And I found that I bump into this all the time. And the fact that when I give the clear examples from the scripture that people will not give it up, it, it doesn't bother me because I've given you the truth. What you should be concerned about is, is that you have all kinds of options in your life of things you can drink, but you will not give up alcoholic beverages when you know clearly that that is not part of a good testimony. That should scare the living daylights out of you. And beloved, if you've gotten to the point where you say, I've had a hard day, I need a glass of wine, you are already far down the road of abusing what, the, this, what, what is there. I've had a hard day, so I need to, re, I need to unwind that's precisely the direction everybody goes, see? And it's just a matter of volume now, right? How much does it take to unwind? And along with all of that, that compromised testimony and the bad example it sets for your children who are going to watch you very carefully and do a lot more than you do, and it puts you in a position of taking on encumbrances and sin as opposed to setting them aside. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. You're supposed to lay aside every weight of sin that besets us, not add them to your pack. And adding to your life a vice that is rarely ever unloaded without pain and heartache. No one takes their first drink and says, I'm going to ruin my family, I'm going to lose my job, and I'm going to get a couple of DUIs and lose my driver's license. Nobody does, and yet nobody says that when they take their first drink, and yet that is precisely what happens. Why? Because this is a vice of the world, and this creates a, a desire, and you don't know where that desire is going to end, so why would you put it in your life to begin with? And of course, we can then debunk the deception that this can be justified under the freedom of Christ. I think you can understand that you do have freedom from the guilt and the punishment of sin, but you don't have freedom to do something the Lord has specifically said not to do. Do you understand that? Not to be walking in fellowship with him. So we need to make sure that we understand what freedom in Christ looks like. And on top of all that, you know, verse 3 deals with in the way of and takes in the believer's associations and the locations. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22. We looked at this before. I'll just say, verse 22 says, avoid all appearance of evil. See, it matters what people think about what you're doing. Do you know that? People say, well, it doesn't matter what people think. I, I, before the Lord, I, I'm guilty or not. No, that, that's not true. It, it is ultimately true. But in your testimony in the world, what people think about what you're doing matters a lot. In fact, 
for me to be qualified, it has a lot, some of those things have to do with what the, what the, the culture thinks about me, how I interact with, with, with the neighborhood around me, all that kind of stuff. See, my reputation, this is important. This, is, this means this is what other people think. And mark this, this is all outward appearances of a compromised testimony. Avoid all of them. We're supposed to be aware of all that and apply it correctly. And there's no place for it in leadership. And there's no place for that, First Thessalonians 5.22 says, in your life either. All appearance of evil. First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. And we looked at this pretty clearly when we went through. Paul says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, covetous, an idolater, a reviler, mark this, a drunkard, mythosos. That's another word having to do with alcohol. It indicates being intoxicated. Avoid those who get intoxicated by alcohol. Drinking to the point where there's some impact. Let's be clear about that. Or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What's it say? Does it say it's okay to hang with them as long as I don't do what they do? No. In fact, you're not supposed to have those associations or be in those locations at all according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, right? In verse 3, Paul says, I already wrote this to you. So it's a repeat not to associate with any so-called brother. And that associate is to be in the company of or in proximity to and catch it. They call it a so-called brother. So what's the focus? This is very important. Catch this. People who call themselves believers, so they're in the church, but they're so-called believers because they were allowing things in their lives that call that relationship to Christ into question. You see? And one of those things is alcohol. Anybody in spiritual leadership must order their life in this way. And this is the standard of godliness for every believer. And beloved, again, I don't give you my opinion. And none of these things springs out of legalism. And I say that because you can avoid alcohol completely and still not be godly. You can say, I'm never going to go to a movie my whole life and still not be godly. Legalism is not godliness, okay? When you're excluding things so people will think you're godly, that's not in itself godly. Reigning your life in certainly is part of walking with the Lord. But you can avoid alcohol and still not be godly. So this has nothing to do with legalism. It has everything to do with what does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? And how does that apply to me? And if you missed that first study, again, and you need more, I gave you numerous passages that helped us understand the difference between biblical wine, fermented wine, strong drink, all that. We won't do that again. It'll take too much time. But I think you can understand. So when Paul says to Timothy, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Is he telling Timothy to use alcohol? No, he is not. He's just simply saying this. All other prohibitions in place, Timothy. If you're sick, it's okay to drink the fruit of the grapes without compromising your testimony and without compromising your qualifications, keeping everything else in perspective. Uh, this medical application is appropriate for God's people. And that can help us in some other areas as well. So we understand other things that might be uh, medically applicable. But it certainly isn't a passage that we can stand on and say, there, see, Paul says to use alcohol because that's just, that just doesn't line up with anything we see in the scriptures. Let's wrap up chapter five. We'll be done. Um, just obviously Paul picks up and, and in verse 22 he says, uh, don't lay hands upon anyone too hastily, thereby share the responsibility of sins. And then verse 24, and he gives those two footnotes. And in verse 24 he kind of picks up there and he says this, the sins of some men are quite evident going along before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow afterwards. Verse 25, likewise also deeds that are good are quite evident and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. 
The wise choosing of elders is not an impossible task. That's how we can read that, that addition there right at the end of this chapter. It's not impossible, Timothy. If time is allowed to elapse before ordaining, character is going to manifest itself sooner or later. And for some, sins that would disqualify them from consideration are going to become apparent rather quickly with a cursory search. In other words, no matter what they may say, what they think the Lord wants them to do, it's going to be clear that they're not qualified. For others, discovering whether they meet the qualifications are going to take some time. And so principle 10 in relating to elders is some men will obviously be unfit to be pastors. It's not going to take long to figure that out. It could be some of the things that have happened that led them up to this point. Could be their kids are not in obedience. There's all kinds of things, uh, not good testimony in the community. They love money, wh whatever it is. Uh, they're a player. Paul says, listen, don't worry about this, Timothy. There's going to be men uh, serving there now or who would like to serve. And it's going to be obvious that they're not qualified. And uh, the judgment here is most likely referring to the decision to ordain or not. That's the word crisis. The sins of men are some quite evident going before them to judgment. And that's the word crisis. That's the same word that's used at the Bema Seat, uh, final condemnation and final judgment, all that. But I think the situation here is pretty clear. It, um, it really is just taking in this assessment of a suitability uh, to the pulpit. The final judgment of whether or not we should put our hands on him and put him in is going to be pretty clear. It's going to be obvious because those sins come along uh, to that judgment. They can see them. For others, their sins follow after. And so that's principle number 11 in relating to elders. Sometimes you can't know they're unfit until later. That has to do with this whole idea of, listen, if you've done your homework and you've taken some time and you put them in, listen, you do your due diligence, but you can't know the future. And you can't know what decisions will be made. And people have to watch closely their life, right? If they don't watch closely their life, then they're going to get in trouble over time. And they go down this path in the direction they shouldn't go, and they're not in the Word, and, and they're going to find they're not reigning their thoughts, and next thing you know, they're disqualified, see? But you can't know that in advance because there's no way to see the future. So Paul says, listen, sometimes you can't know it, and, and so they're going to get in trouble and become all unqualified to be pastors, and you're going to have to deal with that then at that point. Verse 25 says, likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident. And I, I love this, principle 12, in relating to elders. Sometimes the life and the character and the deeds are visible over the long haul, and there won't need to be an additional amount of time needed. Here's some examples. You're bringing a pastor in. He's pastored somewhere else. You did your due diligence, and there's not problems in that church, and there wasn't problems in the one before, and he's got kids that are under control, and his wife comes up under him, and he's got a good reputation in the community, and it's just obvious, see, and I got the joy of participating in installing uh, a guy in the pastor I told you months ago where I hired him as a youth minister 25 plus years ago. And, and he's been there that whole time. And then we did, we did an ordination service and we examined him. But you know what? It, it, was, it was academic. Why? Because his life had already been proven out in 25 years of living publicly in a fishbowl in front of the church. If there were any problems, we already would have known it, Right? So you just have to say, okay, these deeds come along and, and it's visible over the long haul and they're not going to be an additional amount of time needed because some noble deeds are clear and people are known by everybody in that way and they've been around long enough, there's enough evidence for the good and the decision can be made. And that's just real exciting too. And those which are, it says, otherwise cannot be concealed. And, and of course, it just kind of sums up 
what he said at the beginning, but I think it's a, a general great uh, principle for everybody, not just for those who lead the church. Because again, I say to you, one standard of godliness, does the Lord want more from those who lead the church than he wants from those who are in the church? We're all his bride, right? And so what's the deal? Some things are clearly evident. Some, some things come to light later. So the general principle of Christian living is this. Eventually, nothing will be hidden. And I tell our men a lot when we, when we teach them privately and we have them at the men's retreat and, and they've heard me say this over again. Given enough time, the truth is going to come out. Give enough time, unrepentant sinfulness, and all of a sudden it's going to be clear. So you, you rein your life in. You watch closely, as he told Timothy. Keep yourself free from sin. Watch carefully. See what you're supposed to see. For the elder, for everyone else. Because as always, there's just one standard of godliness. And Luke chapter 8 verse 17 helps us understand this. Nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Sometimes it comes to light earlier, but all of it's going to come to light, see. And I think that really is the essence of the Bema Seat Judgment, is it not? That when we stand in the Bema Seat Judgment and we're judged about what we built on the foundation of Christ, everything is clear to everybody. Everything that was done and that resulted in wood, hay, and stubble that's stripped away with fire. And what's left is what's done correctly. And some people, the Bible says, will escape as one escapes a fire with their robe of righteousness on and that's it. They worked their whole life and it didn't add up to anything. Not anything for eternity. And so that's, that brings it all back on all of us. We all have that obligation to walk in this way and live in the light of those realities. All right, let's pray. We're out of time. Lord, we thank you today for uh, the, the, the blessedness of being together as a church. I'm so grateful to be doing ministry together with these folks and how uh, uh, much of a blessing they are to me to watch them and participate with them in, in uh, faithfully doing the ministry, discharging our work, raising our families, uh, being a witness in the community, loving you, Father, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself and, and just making those things uh, uh, priority glad to be in a church where you're doing that. Your Holy Spirit is prompting people to read your word and do what it says and know that it matters what, that we do it. And so, Father, in all these things, it really is just a matter of learning what's pleasing to you. Maybe up until this point, we didn't know what was pleasing to you, but now we do. Now, what do we do with it? It's our desire to do so, not just some goodness, but goodness all the more. First Thessalonians 4 says, do it all the more as you see the day approaching. And so, Father, I pray that you'll do your work in our heart, that we will be able to be uh, set free from uh, maybe perhaps preconceived ideas which were incorrect, and then align our lives correctly. We might have an effective testimony and be salt and light in a community that so desperately needs it. They don't need more camouflaged Christians who, in, in the false assumption of freedom in Christ, doing things that the world does and thinking somehow they're going to be effective. Lord, just purge us from all that foolishness. Help us to be a faithful church, doing what you say in all these areas as we understand them. And we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.